Hey crew, good morning, good to see you. And also before I get underway, I wanna give a big shout out, have you all give a big round of applause for all of our worship teams the last few months. Some of you may or may not know, but uh, Pastor Trent, who is our worship arts pastor, he's been on sabbatical for a little while now. He comes back on uh, Palm Sunday, so he, not this next Sunday, but the Sunday after. So he's been out for a few months just kind of resting, talking to different ministry leaders and heads, traveling around the country a little bit. It's been great, so it's been great to have him getting that rest that he deserved. It's been great having these teams get involved with everything we do here. Uh, so it's just been really awesome all the way around, and they put in a lot of extra work to do that. Super proud of them, super blessed by them and everything they've brought to us. And so uh, it's been awesome to have them just kind of getting us ready for everything we learn from God's Word, in particular to this current series that we're in where it's all about divided we stand, right? H how we're to be a unique and distinct group of people in the world for the good of Jesus and, and really for the sense of the gospel to touch the world in that way. And so we've learned a lot of things. And, and one of the things we've seen with John is this idea of extreme. And I don't know about you, but, but maybe uh, in your world, you've had those people that they're just notorious for that kind of communication. They love to speak in extremes. For example, they say things like, hockey is the greatest sport to ever be created, and cats are the worst pet to ever walk the earth. Extreme people, right? So, uh, or, or maybe it's something like, you know what, I love Italian food, but I hate Thai food. Or she's the most brilliant person I've ever met, and he is the dumbest person to ever walk the planet, you know? Just extreme language. Now, in these extremes, sometimes it's very helpful as a tool to communicate a, a deeper point or a broader idea or just to be emphatic about a statement but there are times where this extreme speech can also uh, kind of wound or harm or confuse maybe the more tender-hearted uh, that are among us. And, and I think about this even early on in our marriage with Ellen and I, uh, she would use extreme language to make a point where she would say, you always or you never. You know, so you always live, leave your dishes in the sink or you never put your clothes in the hamper. Here's what was true. I mostly never did anything but put my dishes in the sink or put my clothes in. It was kind of true what she was saying, but I would hear those words and I would almost get kind of bothered and offended like, I always, I never, you know, and I'd have this kind of tenseness about it and take it to an extreme. I guess I always do that. I guess I never do that, you know, and then eventually she realized like, Matt's too literal, you know, like he takes always and never to mean always and never, and I'm just trying to make a point. And so it was good for us to journey through all of that and to understand those nuances, now, in the same way, I think John is in a similar space. And throughout his kind of vloggy letter that is 1 John, we see that he talks a lot in extremes, and those extremes are designed to share a point, but we shouldn't get so locked into the extremes we feel like we're constantly failing, which is some of the risk. And in these extremes, he's brought up both the extremes of things that we are not to do, that we sometimes do, and the extreme of to do things that maybe we don't always fulfill or fulfill to the degree that we, we desire to. And, and, and so kind of in this, we revisit just really quickly kind of some of the things that, that he's talked about. Like in the negative, he says some pretty extreme things like, we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but we go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. That's pretty extreme. 
Or the extreme of, if we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth. If anyone claims, I'm living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in the darkness. Extreme, you always, you never. That's the way it can sound, right? And it's not just avoiding the dangers, but it's also acting on what God desires. John talks very extremely there as well. He says, we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commands, like all of them, right? Real stark. Or those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. And this is how we know that we live in him. Those who say they live in God should live just as Jesus did. That's pretty extreme, right? Because he's perfect. He's complete. He was sacrificial and selfless completely. Do we all do that all the time? That sounds extreme. Or this one. If anyone loves a fellow believer and lives in the light, that person doesn't cause others to stumble. Like like this idea that you never cause another to have a problem or a hiccup because of what you do. That is all very hard. And as John continues on in his letter, he's going to continue to be extreme. The faithful Christian, he will say, doesn't sin. The faithful Christian doesn't need any teachers because they have the Holy Spirit. The faithful Christian has the same potency and purity of love as God himself does toward the world. With all of those extremes, there would be some listeners who may hear all of that and they could go, that's not me. I'm not that. I I I don't nail it every time could cause uncertainty or insecurity or even a sense of risk spiritually because you could begin to feel like, hey, if I'm not, not getting an A+, plus, I'm automatically getting an F-, minus. like there's no bandwidth in between. And so not only would this be discouraging, but I actually think that it would derail what John's deeper motivation is, which is he's writing so that we have joy. He's writing so we understand who we are in Christ and that assurance that we have when it comes to eternal life. And so today, in John, to counterbalance his extremes, he will offer up another series of extremes. Extremes that encourage, extremes that inspire, extremes that flow from a pastoral heart of wanting to build people up so he can deploy them out. And so that's what we're jumping into today. Now, uh, if you have our app, there are notes that are in that app that you can follow along, gives you all the passages, all the blanks to fill in and everything else. That would be awesome. But with today, I want us to understand that there's going to be both warning and inspiration. And we want to be ready for both. And so I want to go ahead and pray right now. Settle us for this day and what Jesus wants to do in our hearts and lives. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you love us enough to say hard things. And I thank you that you love us enough to give us what we need to live hard things. And in this, I also thank you that you forgive us when we don't always live up to the hard things. And in this, you can still redeploy us and use us so that we can face the next set of hard things with greater victory. And so today, I ask that you will uh, be tender with us, that you will mobilize us, that you will give us a sense of what we have through you. And from that, we will live fully and forcefully and freely in you. And so open your word to our hearts, dig down deep in us so that we are reinforced in the things you have for us. We love you and we thank you and we need you in your good name. Amen. All right. So John has said some stuff in his letter. 
stuff that's daunting and difficult and sometimes could be discouraging to the sensitive soul. He really has. But today, we're going to see where he wants to reinflate their spiritual balloons, right? Give them this sense of drive and this sense of overcoming spirit, right? He wants to invigorate their souls so that they can go, oh man, no, I see what I have, not just what's before me, but I see what I have in Christ, and then I can move forward. And so he's going to talk in these very extreme but extra, extravagant ways so that they're equipped, so they're fulfilled, and they can live out the will and wisdom of God. And so if you're taking notes with us this morning, we're going to start with number one, which is being motivated by what is true, even when it doesn't feel like it. What is true, right? may not always feel true. You may not always sense it's true. You may not always live out what is true. But nonetheless, it's still true, and it's meant to move us and inspire us. And so what he's going to do now, he's going to bust out a series of rapid-fire truths, and it's going to come in like this spoken word format. It's like kind of this songish, poetry, haikuish kind of thing. And when you read it, you might just be like, oh, well, that was interesting. But it's meant to be profoundly inspiring. So in chapter 2, starting in verse 12, after having talked about living like Christ and loving in the light and not falling into the darkness and everything else, he writes this. He says, I am writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. And I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. And I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I've written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I've written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. And I've written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and have won your battle with the evil one. I love this again because it's still very Jeff Goldblum-ish to me. Right? I am writing to you. Did I mention I'm writing to you? Yes, I'm writing to you. I've written to you. I've written to you. I have written to you. Did I tell you you know Christ? Yes, you know Christ. Did I tell you you've overcome the evil one? Yes, I told you twice. You know, like, like it's all in there, and you're like, what do I do with all of this? Here's what it is. It is the coolest pep talk ever. That's what it is. It's Pete Carroll, like, slapping high fives and chewing his gum and walking the sideline and being all excited. Like, that's John. That's what he's wanting to do right here in this space. And while he's had a lot of sober warnings and lofty expectations, he rolls in here with extreme language to counteract the extreme language he's had, right? To round things out and give us a sense of mobilization and press forward. And so to them and to us, what he's kind of doing is he's writing to the mature, to the novice, and to everyone in between. And he kind of highlights these six general ideas. And I'm going to try to go through these in such a way that you understand, again, the passion, the, the, the forcefulness, and the sense of beauty and, in, and encouragement that is found in these things. So the first thing he says is, your sins have been forgiven through Jesus, right? And listen, here's the bottom line. We all sin, we all fail, we all blow, we all miss the mark. Sometimes we do it knowingly, sometimes we do it ignorantly, but it happens, in all of our lives, right? And yet what he's saying is, but you know what? Christ is faithful. Christ is, is, is earnest in your life. Christ is going to do what you need in your life. He is the one that can step into the failure, the mistake, the, 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 the things that we do that we don't want to do, and he can forgive it. He can pull you back up. He can deploy you. And so when you hear that, like, Christ is forgiven you, your response should be amen, right? Amen? Because he's forgiven you. 
It's, it's so encouraging, but he's not done there. He says, moreover, you know Christ. You don't just know about him. You don't just know of him. You know him. We saw in Colossians, his life is hidden with you. Your life is in him because you know Christ. You are complete, amen? Right on. Well, then he continues even more. I'm gonna lose my voice by the end of this. He says, you have won your battle with the evil one. He doesn't say you might win it, you could win it, hopefully you should win it. He's like, no, man, you have won it. You're God's kids. You've bested the bad guy, amen? I feel like you should give a knuckle bump to your neighbor right now. We bested the evil one. That's what he wants to inspire. And listen, the bottom line is, thank you for those knuckle bumps, by the way. He says, sure, right? Here's the reality. You might lose some skirmishes. You might sometimes make decisions that break your heart and break God's heart, but the bottom line is you got to stand in what is true. You still defeated the evil one. He might mess with you, but you know what? He's lost. You've won because of what Jesus has done. Amen? All right, you're tracking. Good. Continues on. He says, not only that, you know the Father, the God who is a part of unapproachable light that could not be drawn into the Old Testament. Now he is the one that comes to dwell among us, to work in us, to say, you're my kid, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're my child. I stand with you, I stand for you. You know me and I know you. Amen? Amen. Tracking still. Not only this, you are strong. On these days where you feel weak, defeated, incapable, unsure, aimless, he's like, no, 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 you are still strong. You have overcoming victory. You have defeated the evil one. You have this sense of being more than a conqueror. You have the love of God. You have the life of Christ. You have the power of the Spirit. You are strong. Tell your neighbor, you're strong. Not with conviction, you're strong. This is what John's looking for. We're strong. Believe it. Own it. This is what Christ has earned for you. And then he goes on and says this. God's word lives in you. And remember what John's theology is. What is the word? It's Jesus first and foremost. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then this word comes and dwells among us. Why? So the enrichment of his message then would be in our lives that his mission would be our mission, that it would resonate and resound with us. His love and life would be poured in our lives. Amen? This is what John wants to say to you, right? He's trying to get us inspired after saying some daunting stuff. He wants us to know, but here's what is true. Yes, these are lofty ideas, but we serve a lofty God who does lofty things in his people. And so it is inspiration to the core, right? These are the truths. Even when we don't always live in the scope of those truths, they're true nonetheless. And they're meant to align our daily actions. They're meant to give us divine empowerment. And so John has a strategic moment when he rolls this out. He's like, yes, I've said some tough stuff. I've set some high bars. It feels like, man, is this even achievable? And he's like, oh, but you also have to know some other really high bars. You know him. He knows you. He's forgiven you. You were strong. You've overcome. You have what you need. And so having said that, he says, you have these things for point two in your notes. To avoid. To avoid what is false. Because in the end, it doesn't pay off. Right? There are things that are going to come before us in our lives. And we need to lean into what is true to, to work through and overcome or course correct 
in the difficult things that come into our lives and the things that tempt us and challenge us. Now, to fully grasp where John is going to be going here, we need to revisit where John has been. Because he said some stuff, right? In particular, what we know about John is that he loves love. He is all in on love. That is his theme. He wants us to get that. Three different times in this letter, he's going to pound out this idea that this is what makes us different. This is what makes us unique. This is what makes us distinct in the world. We are awesome at love. Now, love is hard, but it's still his focus and his core ideology, right? Because God is love. We're supposed to understand what real love is. This is why he says, hey, man, I'm giving to you an old commandment, but it's a new commandment. Nonetheless, it's still the same commandment that you love. Love pays tribute to who God is, and love pays tribute to what God has done toward the world, that that was his affection in sending Jesus. In fact, in chapter 4 of 1 John, he says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not artificial, not man-made. This is God-oriented love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and testify that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. And this sounds familiar to us. Like, I've read this before, yeah, in John's gospel. Remember, this first John letter is kind of a commentary on his gospel. And what did he say there? For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge it, but rather to save the world through him. This is why John writes in chapter 2 of his letter, he is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the world, right? You pile all of this together that John is emphasizing. And he's telling us, God is love. And in love, God sent Jesus into the world to show, prove, display to the world just how much he actually loves. We didn't love him, didn't want him, didn't care, blew him off, did our own thing. He's like, I don't care. I still love you, and I'm still sending my son for you. That's love. And in love, he takes away the sin. In love, he gives the world what it needs. In love, he restores a relationship that we didn't desire, but we desperately needed. So in this, you can see the theme. God loves the world. And if we love God, we love the world around us. That is so John's core ideology here. Which then makes his next words seem really jarring. Where he says... Do not love the world. You're like, what you talking about, Willis? What do you mean, don't love the world? You just told us that God is love. God loves the world. We're supposed to have love toward the world as well. We're supposed to love one another and love our neighbor and love our enemy. Isn't that loving the world? Why the sudden shift? Well, what we want to understand is that there is a monster difference, a monster difference between love in and toward the world versus love of the world. Just the subtle shift. Love toward the world, good. Love of the world, bad. Love toward the world brings flourishing to the world. Love of the world only offers and produces decay. In fact, John says it in its fullness this way. 
He says, do not love this world, nor the things that it offers to you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Now in this, we want to remember that love has a lot of applications. It's like a suite of different apps, right? And so love can play out in affection. Love can play out in attitude. Love can play out in action. It's like ethos and pathos all working together to create kind of longings and loyalties rolled into one. That is what is true. And yet in this, what we have to understand about the dynamic of love is something that uh, Henry Skugel, one of my favorite writers, long time dead, but had a brilliant idea, where he says the worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. In other words, wherever we cast our love, wherever we look toward a, a thing, a person, whatever, to, to really give our deepest love, it's going to reinforce and reinform that love. So if we put our love into things that are truly of great value and worth and eternal magnitude, it's going to reinforce that love and give us an even deeper kind of love in the way that we love that thing. But if we pick a thing that has lesser value, it decays, it withers, it isn't selfless, but selfish, it's going to and form that kind of love loop in our lives. So it can go either way. Love is kind of a word, but where we put our love, what we choose to love, reinforces that very kind of love. That was Skugel's idea. And so if we love the principles and practices of this world, it's ultimately going to be anemic. It's, it's going to be rooted in a sense of selfishness. But if we decide to love the things of God, that's going to drive a passion and a priority that is enriching when it comes to the things of God and how we then engage our world in the scope of that kind of love. So love is going to be defined in our lives based on what it is we're most loving. And the problem with the love of the world is that ultimately it's synthetic. Right? It's artificial in that sense. It's a substitute. Whereas this idea of love toward God, it's authentic and it's substantive, right? It's just a difference in here. And John knows this, and he loves us enough to tell us that this is the truth, right? And John is getting into this in part because really there's two components. Uh, one component is this idea that basically uh, we don't want to fall for false love. We don't want to misplace our love in the wrong things because not only does it rob us, not only does it kind of fade, not only does it decay, but, but to put our love in this world misses out on the fact that there is a fuller, deeper love that's much more satisfying. And in that, as we live in the satisfaction of this love that can be, we can then display to the world something greater than what they even realize may be there, right? We can show a more compelling way because everybody wants true love. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to love in this authentic, beautiful way. But the world kind of strips us of the ability to fully do that. And so John's trying to get us on track. I'm like, no, there is a way to see this accomplished. Now, the solution is not to, okay, so I love God and hate the world then, and that's how I do this. No, that's not the solution. The solution is to have love for the world without a love of the world. We have to keep this in tandem. Because again, in the extremes, it could go, love God, hate the world. And John be like, no, 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 because God loved the world. You want to have love for it. But don't set your love on it. Don't give away your heart to it, right? Because we want to remember we still have a mandate. 
this mandate to love God, love neighbor, love enemy, that is something that happens in this plane of the world, right? But we want to maximize the ability to do this love, and so the way we can love the world around us well is to not fall in love with the world around us. It's the only way it can work in a way that is healthy and thriving. John says, for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, a pride in our achievements and possessions. Now, honestly, when I read that, um, it causes me to pause because there's something I said last week I want to revisit really quick. I said, there are some cultures that John's words are easier to apply than others, right? So particularly communal societies, John's words, they resonate more. They're like, we're already doing community. We're not individualistic. This makes perfect sense. But in the United States, I said, we're a society that's very individualistic. And so this idea of sacrifice for the good of the community is a little bit more strange. Well, then I read this, this list of these three areas that John says, oh, these things get in the way. And they're like the three legs on the stool of the American dream when you really think about them, right? They kind of list out in that particular fashion. And what I don't want us to do with this list is just say, oh, well, this list is dealing with ethically questionable things, right? That's the only real danger. So lustful pleasures or unauthorized wants or this frat boy or spoiled girl pride, like that's the danger. Now, when I look at this, I go, we all, we all risk this list of three areas. I know I do. I mean, honestly, I'm just kind of looking at this and staring at it this week, and I'm like, I do that one, I do that one, I do that one, in different ways. Let's deal with the issue of pleasure, right? It can be sinful, lustful, whatever we want to call it, but it can also be where we just go, you know what, Uh, having fun, good times, good vibes, that becomes our chief aim and priority in life. I'm just living for the next fun thing. I'm living for the next great adventure. I'm living for that next pleasure moment. It can pull us in really easy in a culture of affluence. But the problem with it is it shifts our sense of what's most important to what's least important. We spend a lot of our life on the pleasures more than we spend our lives on the priorities of what maybe God would have us do, even with the resources that we have that so often we put to pleasures. God might be saying like, but I want you to do some stuff in other veins, in other venues too. And so we want to be reminded of these things because there are moments um, where we have cravings that we want them to satisfy our soul and God's like, but they, they can't really satisfy your soul. They can't really fill you up. You're going to be left kind of chasing the breadcrumbs to to get more and get more and get more, and it's never really going to give you what you're most seeking. The second thing he says is craving everything we see. This is the idea of pursuit of things without reflecting on whether they have real meaning or real, real value in the end. Right? Sometimes we're just consuming Right? I want that, I want that, I want that. It's like catalog life when we were kids, right? At Christmas time, you get the catalog. I want that, I want that, I want that. For Christmas, I want the catalog, you know? And it's just the pursuit of everything. And so we put a lot of time or possessions or money or emphasis or passion into things, but we don't really weigh out. Does it have value? Is it going to accomplish the goals that I'm really wanting it to accomplish in my life and in the world? And then 30 talks about the pride and achievements and possessions. And this pride isn't just, yep, I did it. I earned it. It's mine. I made it happen. 
I'm the man. Like that certainly is pride and achievement and possessions. But there's another layer to what this can be, right? It's saying, I take personal security and safety in the things that ensure my security and safety. These are the things that promise me a better tomorrow. These are the things that guarantee me the future that I seek. This is the, the promise of my prosperity in these things. If I have these things, I have contentment. And if I don't have these things, I don't. If I have these things, man, that is flourishing. I have these things, that's decay. That's the risk in some of these things, especially this idea of the pride of achievements and possessions. And the problem is twofold here. One is it just simply risks idolatry. And John's going to say that at the very end of this letter. He's like, don't give in to idols, right? And, and these three things all kind of deal with our idols. And part of what an idol was, was an artificial God that promised you that you would have fun and stuff and a future, right? And if I don't have the things that offer me fun, stuff, and a future, then I'm going to be sad. But I have the things, if I have the things that offer me fun, stuff, and a future, I'm going to be happy. As soon as we're asking this world to make us happy, or if we don't have it, it's going to make us sad. So we start to look for things to ensure our happiness and kind of protect us from sadness. That risks idolatry. We're asking things or the world to be this thing that only God can be. And so John knows this, and he's trying to warn us that these areas, it's a trap. It leads to things that bring decay, right? But the other thing about these three things is that if these are our priority— uh, they undermine our ability to love God and others well because we're too busy trying to secure things for ourselves. We're trying to ensure we get what we most want out of this life, and we're kind of milking it dry. In fact, the whole thing reminds me of something Jesus talks about in the Gospels. He says uh, there's this constant contention between God and money, right? And, and they both want to be the God of our life, and he says— the bottom line is one always bows to the other, right? One always sacrifices itself to the other. And so Jesus is like, you can't blend them. It's either God or money, or money or God. But, but somebody's going to lose in the end between those two. And it's kind of in a similar fashion. It's either God or world, right? And you can't quite blend the two in the underlying deepest values of the system. You have to decide which one has my loyalty? Which one has my faith? Which one gives me a sense of true promise and true future? Because they don't share the same orientation. This is why he says in verse 16, these are not from the Father, but are from the world, those three different areas. Now I want to be clear. Pleasure actually does come from God. And everything, well, he made everything, so everything comes from God. And even this idea of achievement and possession, that is actually something that was ordained by God. So we go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see all of that. God's like, man, I made you for pleasure. I've given you everything but this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but I want you to have dominion. I want you to be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. That's accomplishment and possession. All of that was there. But the problem by Genesis 3 is we inverted everything. And so with this, the danger is excess in all of these three areas or loyalty to all of these three things or the sense of abuse that comes with these three areas or saying, you know what, these three things are just more substantial than the God things. And so John's like, I don't want you to have misguided affection. More than that, I don't want you to make long-term investments in poor investments. 
putting all of our time and passion and attention and focus into the principles of the world doesn't pay off. He says this world is fading away, along with everything that the people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Basically what he's saying is investing into loving this world to fill up your life. It's a law of diminishing returns. It, it means you just keep throwing yourself into stuff that is not going to pay you back. You're, you're throwing yourself into stuff that actually collects more interest off your life and never gets you ahead, right? Because that's going to be the reality, because the world's fading. It's fading. You wouldn't keep dumping money into a company that was blowing money every month and making no progress and be like, this is a great idea. And the same thing, he's like, life is that. It's fading away. But investing into a loving God and loving God and loving people in that investment, he says, that's an endless spring. That's a spring of enrichment and renewal and a spring that rewards. In fact, we even know this. What do we say when we help our community, when we help other people, when we give ourselves away? We say it's rewarding. Like God's built it in there. When we're taking, 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 consuming, it's never enough. You always need more for the next, right? You need the bigger this or the broader that or the cooler this. Or whatever. And it, it, like the high is never the same. With each time you need more stuff to get the same high, and the high is always less than the time before. But there's something about when we give ourselves away and we, we let God's priority be our priority. Man, that's enriching. That fills us up. God knows the formula. He built this for this equation. And so John's point is that man, love this world, it downtrends. Love the things of God, it uptrends. And the difference here is mindset. In fact, I, I put together kind of John's structure here. It's a little bit of this idea of flywheels. And so if you have this love of the world, it's going to come from the world. And it's just a self-enclosed cycle. Right? And so you keep going to the world for love, and it keeps defining then what love is for you, and then you keep going to the world for more love, and it keeps defining what love is for you, and it just, it flywheels. But in the same way, love of the Father comes from the Father. So the more we're loving what God loves, the more we sense the love of God in us, and therefore the, we have more of a love of what God loves, and then we have more of a sense of God's love in us. And so both are fundamentally flywheels. The bottom line is wherever you invest, reinvests into that investment— and reinforces your focus. I want to say that again. Wherever you invest, reinvest into that investment and reinforces your focus. So this is where I talk about the worth and excellency of a soul as measured by the object of its love. And it just spins up and up and up. And so the difference here is where we set our mind. Paul said it this way. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. We could change this for John and say those who think about worldly principles are then dominated by worldly principles. Who think about worldly collecting stuff, whatever, is dominated by worldly stuff. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Holy Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind, it leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your minds leads to life and to peace. See, there are two insights I think we can kind of gather here. Um, the first is pretty straightforward. Whatever consumes our time and our attention, that informs our priorities, right? So this is why we call it a mindset. Wherever we set our minds is going to be our mindset. So whatever we focus on all the time, whatever we're consumed by, whatever our priorities are, it's going to drive our interior 
to want more of the same, right? And so if we set our minds on the world, it's going to be more of wanting the world. If we set our minds on the things of God, it's going to be wanting more of the things of God. But the other thing is there's a clear sense of felt progression. So if we set our minds on the world, it ultimately leads to decay and, 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 and this sense of, of death and things that are passing away. But if we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, it's what? Flourishing in life and peace. And most people in life, if you ask them, what do you most want? They want life, a good life. They want peace. And John's like, right! Paul's like, right! Here it is. Like, God has afforded this to you. This is why John won't shut up again about true life, abundant life, eternal life. Jesus has come to give you the thing you all want. He's come to give you life. So rich, so beautiful, so good, but it's so challenging. But what it's saying is pick the path. Because there's two. There's a world path or a God path. Pick the path. The reality is love of the world comes from the world and it's going to downdraft because the world is fading away. It's always a down curve. We think, no, 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 it's going to be an up curve. Nope, it's always a down curve. The only up curve is the love of the Father. It comes from the Father, the Father who lives forever, the God who lives forever. So when we lean into pleasing God, we lean into this God who lives forever and gives life abundant forever. John loves us enough to say the hard things. See, what we know in all of this is that the problem of misguided and misdirected love isn't simply that it's wrong. That's typically where we go. Oh, well, self-absorbed life is wrong or it's sinful. And I go, sure, we kind of know that. But I think this goes a step deeper, deeper and says it's also unsustaining and unfulfilling and ultimately unloving to God, to others. And honestly, this sounds weird. It's even unloving to yourself. It is. If we love this world, it just is going to continue to rob. It's going to continue to be an unsustaining source of life. But to love the person of God, to love what pleases God, to love the world in the name of God, man, that unleashes true life. That undoes the decay of death. And that undermines the one who wants to wreck our lives every day. Like the more we say, I'm not going to let the enemy dictate my, my values and my priorities. I'm going I'm to let God dictate these things. I'm not going to let the world rob me. I'm going to find life in what God has for me. Man, that is where there's, there's grace. That is where there's power. That is where we overcome. And so remember today, we're to have love for the world without love of the world. Why? Because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus, and you know Christ who existed from the beginning, and you have won your battle with the evil one, and you know the Father, and you are strong, and God's word lives in your heart. Walk away today knowing what is true. And when we live in this truth, realize that rightly directed love proves that life is better with Jesus. Right now, I want to ask you to bow your heads. And as you do, whether you're in this room or you're watching online, I want to give a kind of a, a loving, encouraging challenge. Maybe there's some here or watching that don't follow Jesus, would not say they're a Christian, but you, you're thinking like, man, I do want this. My, I've done life my way for a long time, and I have not sensed fullness and release. In fact, if anything, I think you're right, Matt. I think it's just a law of diminishing returns. I work harder for less return on investment. 
This world isn't holding me down. It isn't filling me up. It isn't doing it for me. And I think I need this Jesus to do what this world can't do. Man, if that is what you sense today, my challenge to you is don't wait another day. Man, go straight to Jesus now just as you pray silently to yourself and just say, Jesus, I, I, I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I saw those promises. I saw those truths that you forgive and your word comes to dwell and I will be strong. Jesus, I am weak apart from you. I'm sinful apart from you. I am estranged from God apart from you, Jesus. And so bring me into life with you. Bring me into a sense of love for you. Bring me into a newness through you. You make that your prayer in the words that you have, he hears you and draws you in and, and makes these truths true for you. And it's growth and progression, but he will grow you and progress you on to completeness. Paul promises that. And so if you made that your prayer today, we would love to know. In our app, there's a tile or on the screen. When your eyes open up, you're going to see a phone number, and you can just text us, I made that decision today. We would love to know that. For the rest of us, I pray for all of us, Jesus, help us to live in the truths that are true. We all get pulled into the passions of this world. We all get pulled into the securities and priorities of this world. I know I do. I get pulled in on a regular basis. I don't like to admit that publicly. I'd like to pretend like I've got it all figured out and I'm all solid and always squared up, but I'm not. I don't. This is why I can come and confess my sin. I think about that at the beginning of chapter two. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We confess. We fall victim to these things. And yet we celebrate that you have overcome those things. May we live in your overcoming strength and victory. We thank you, Jesus. We seek you. We need you. And so we look to you in your good name. Amen.